Mine's just Tom. Like Madonna. Welcome to our experience in ASCP podcast. We're coming out of last week's show where we talked a little bit about fear and kind of coming to grips with some of the challenges that the industry faces and had a great conversation about that. And we're going to pivot the other 180 degrees this week and talk about hope. So as many of you know, the first Star Wars, even though it's the fourth Star Wars, is titled A New Hope, which is why I put my land speeder out here in front. So everybody could see it. But let's be honest. I mean, the aging population and the contemporary use of medication has created an intersection in healthcare that is profound. Part of the reason that we're invested in long-term care has to do with that intersection. So pharmacists with experience and pharmacists that have really attacked this market do have a lot of hope. So we're going to talk today to one of those pharmacists that really exudes hope and investment in the long-term care space. I'm Chad Wurz. I'm the chief executive for the American Society of Consultant Pharmacists. I'm joined by my partner in crime, Tom Hansel. Tom, how are you? I'm doing good. And we're excited to have our, our next guest on. Chad's got the Star Wars piece there, but I'm wearing the, the Ted Lasso Believe shirt. So I've enjoyed Ted Lasso and we'll use a few Ted Lasso puns here today. But without further ado, we'd like to introduce Lobby after you, who's from MMP, Medication Management Partners, up in Chicago land area. Lobby, thanks for joining us. Good afternoon, gentlemen. Pleasure and honor to be joined with you two legends of the industry. <laughs> Thank you. That feels good. <laughs> this feels old, but yeah. So, Lobby, tell us a little bit about MMP, specifically what you guys are doing, kind of your presence there. In, in the Chicago area. And then also give us a little background and you yourself personally. Sure. Well, I'll, I'll start myself. I'm a pharmacist. I uh, graduated from the University of Oklahoma in 2004. And uh, I'm by way of Southeastern Europe, the Balkans, an independent country now known as Republic of Kosovo, former Yugoslavia at the time when, when I lived there and left. Came as a foreign exchange student to the United States in 94 in Oklahoma and then finished high school there and finished my degree there as well. And then I believe it was my second or third year of pharmacy school. I did an internship with Walgreens. I, I was working as an intern at a Walgreens close to my pharmacy school and then decided to do an internship with their corporate that they had every summer and select six students. I don't know if that program is still around, but at the time they selected six students from across the country and set them up in Deerfield to do a 12-week internship with Walgreens and and fell in love with Chicago and decided that that's where I wanted to live when I finished pharmacy school. And then once I finished pharmacy school, I did a, a residency program with Brian Jensen up in Two Rivers, Wisconsin, a community pharmacy practice residency. And that's when I was first exposed to, I'd seen compounding before in Oklahoma, but long-term care, especially community-based environments and settings. So Brian had an interesting pharmacy where he was really dabbling a lot of stuff, uh, ambulatory care, kind of disease management, like diabetes, hypertension, through some employers that were paying for their folks to get this additional treatment from and support from the local pharmacy. And then he was doing compounding and compliance packaging for local assisted living communities. So that was kind of the first 
time I had been exposed to it. Right. And then once I finished the residency, I, I moved to the Chicagoland area where I met my my partners now and, and opened up MMP in 2010. So that goes back now 13 years. We just saw an opportunity where, you know, you could see senior living, kind of the residential care community settings where the big players were, you know, had the resources but we're treating it very much like an institutional setting and we felt like it could be done better. And so that's where MMP started in 2010. We, you know, had a small 300 square foot room that we started out of kind of a combo shop to begin with, with about 10 communities, just about a thousand to 1100 residents, you know, fast forward. Now we have somewhere close to 180 communities, close to 9,000 lives that we are providing services and care for, you know, across 13 states. So it's it's been a very interesting and rewarding journey. That's awesome. I'm going to call you out a little bit. I don't think I knew that you were from Oklahoma, so you're a, a boomer sooner. But that's right. Do you know what that means? I'm assuming. Well, uh, well, yeah. I mean, the Sooners were the first folks that that came into Oklahoma when when the territory was open. They crossed before midnight, which is why they were known as, as Sooners. That's so great, and I, I I love that. Like, yeah, you know. So you came from that pioneering environment, and as a pharmacist, you're a, a pioneer in pharmacy, particularly in long term care. So that's a good yeah. that's a good tie to hope. Every time I tell that story, folks kind of ask, you know, why Oklahoma? You know, you're coming from Europe, you know, and how was that like? And I have to tell you, it was just, it was phenomenal. My, I had a host mom, as every foreign exchange student does. Her name's Terry Bryant, and uh, she was phenomenal. High school I went to, met great friends. They really, I think maybe I was somewhat of a novelty being from Eastern Europe and Oklahoma, but... But, you know, felt really welcomed and, and was able to to uh, make friends really, really quickly and just have a lot of fond memories of being in that part of the country. I'm a big fan of I spent a little bit of time in Texas as well. So anyways, fast forward, I have two sisters who have all migrated to to the U.S. over time. My youngest sister now lives in Texas as well. I spent a year in Texas before I went to Oklahoma. I went to Baylor University my freshman year. And so that whole part of the country, I'm just a big fan of. That's a great story. I love that. And I, I mean, that has to play a role in your entrepreneurial spirit and your willingness to take risks and how you've been so successful building your business. It's uh, that's cool. So the landscape back in 2010, and I'm proud to say that I spent time in Chicago myself. I graduated from Chicago College of Pharmacy, Midwestern University. It was a little bit before 2010, but we won't, we, we, it doesn't really matter at that point. But I do know that long-term care well in, in that area, and it's highly, highly competitive. There's several very well-known long-term care pharmacies in the Chicago area. When you were co-founding MMP, what was your thought process on, hey, we can do this and we can do it different. We can differentiate ourselves because the competition is, it, it was and, and still is pretty stiff. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know that it always matters that you're the first, right? I think you know, not not to go on a tangent, but like even big companies like Apple, they're not the first with every product. It's usually about the quality and what you see as the opportunity is. And so even though there's, you know, there's many pharmacies in general, I mean, you know, sure. in Chicago, whether it's long-term care or now 340B and compounding pharmacies, I think it's all about identifying where the white space is, mm -hmm. what the opportunity 
exist even within a particular vertical. So I think when you say long-term care, there's a lot of different niches that kind of fall within that, right? And so you have pharmacies that do really well in kind of the more acute skilled nursing setting or nursing home setting. And you have pharmacies that do, you know, really well in the more ICFDD setting, whether it's developmental disability or, or even behavioral health. And then you have the setting of where we kind of decided to, we felt like there was a white space primarily in congregated senior living. And we just felt at the time that there was really not a pharmacy that focused on it. And so I think a lot of the times it's, you know, the definition of luck that I'm, I'm a big fan of is Oprah's definition of, you know, preparation meets opportunity. And so from a preparation perspective, you know, what is it that that you as a business owner, as a pharmacist, as a professional can do to further your skill sets, to develop your your business acumen, to invest in, and then looking for opportunities. And when those opportunities present themselves, they're not always clear, right? There's not always kind of a, a very, every once in a while they are, you can kind of very clearly see the path. But sometimes they're not very clear. You kind of dabble into something and you figure out that you're either really good at it or not, and then you move on. But I think it's that. I think it's it's investing in, in yourself, your team, and your resources, technology. And then when the opportunity presents itself, you have a better, better shot than than most. And so while there's a lot of competition in Chicago, I think you look at two ways. Well, there's a lot of competition, which probably means there's a lot of opportunity. Right. But, and so how you want to, you know, how you frame your mindset, I think, makes a big difference in terms of how you approach that that situation. I mean, there's a lot to unpack there that I really like. I like your comment about finding the white space. I mean, you'll hear different entrepreneurs across different industries talk about finding the answer to a problem. You have to define the problem and then define the answer. You can't do something and then go search for the problem. And entrepreneurs do a very good job of that. And your comment about white spaces, finding that that area that's not being well managed or handled well and building something around that. And I think that this time in the demographic shift that's going on in this country and really in some other places around the world, the white space is not the nursing home. The nursing home, we've talked to a lot of longtime ASCP members, early leaders and innovators. And at, in their time, the nursing home was the white space. It was brand new and nobody really understood the complexities of dealing with medication management in those sectors. And over time, you know, it's a stagnant environment. There's 15,439 nursing homes. That's the way it's been for the last 20 something years. But the people are growing at an incredible rate. So they're in assisted living. They're in the community. They're in different forms of living environments in the community. And I, I think that's where people like you, other pharmacists out there looking for what should I do with my practice should be sort of exploring is how do I become somebody that provides quality in this sort of new white space that's out there? I have to speak about my partners to kind of back into the entrepreneurial aspect. Sure. Because it's, I think it's really interesting. It just speaks to a lot of what you just talked about, Chad. So I have two other partners that are in MMP. Dave Dobeck and, and his family are third generation family pharmacy business owners. So their grandfather started a retail pharmacy inside of a, of a clinic, a doctor's clinic. Or he was either a doctor or a dentist close to Midway in, in the late 50s. 
So, you know, your traditional kind of retail pharmacy of the time, right? The father, Don Dobeck, took over along with his wife, Dottie. And then in the 80s, they expanded into medical supplies. And then they were kind of a, you know, they were a pioneer in that space of providing disposable medical supplies, ostomy bags, et cetera. And, and they developed a great reputation in the Chicagoland area as kind of a go-to, especially if you are on public aid. And so diabetic supplies became a big component of that as well. And then through that relationship, when you know the third generation took over, Dave and his siblings, they really expanded that to provide those medical supplies inside within the community living, you know, senior living communities. And so that entrepreneurial, that looking for that white space, you know, I, I think you see that across, usually with pharmacists that are successful, you see it, you just kind of constantly are turning over, you know, every rock to see where you can solve problems, like you said. And, and the other part of that is just networking, building right. relationships, right? I think that's what those things do. So that entrepreneurial spirit, you know, runs through, you know, my partners, their family, myself, and then our other partner, whom Dave met through his relationship, servicing his senior living communities in the medical supply space. You know, he was an owner operator, left the operations business, the owner in, in the senior living, kind of really the full continuum. Started off as a nursing home guy, transitional care, kind of high acuity, one of the pioneers in Illinois for the affordable assisted living space. So an entrepreneurial person in and of his own right. I, I think you see that in that long-term care space as well. There's a lot of entrepreneurial uh, spirit in that side as well. And so, but without talking and networking and solving each other's problems, you know, that, that kind of those two sparks never come yeah. together to create, yeah. you know, kind of what becomes, becomes a flame. And I think part of that is, you know, sometimes we get so consumed with just like our own little bubble the you know blinders with your day-to-day -day challenges which which are real they're problematic and look fear is a powerful instinct we evolutionarily as <laughs> as individuals fear you know help keep us alive so it's an emotion that is instinctual and it's real it's very powerful and i think it really takes an effort to turn that down broaden your horizon invest on working on the business as much as working inside the business, cultivating relationships, whether it's through conferences and associations you belong right. to, yeah, you know, relationships with other pharmacists or other providers, yeah, and then keep it in a positive mindset so that when an opportunity, nobody wants to do business with a curmudgeon, right? So if you're going to see the world in kind of a negative view, I think it limits your opportunities. I mean, right. that's just my opinion. So, I could be wrong. There's plenty of right guys on. that have done things yeah. a lot bigger and better than I have. But For sure. That's just my view. So I've got a I've got a Ted Lasso quote here, sticking with with my theme I'm, I'm believing here. And he says, trust your gut. And on the way down, check in with your heart. Between those two things, you'll know what to do. How much of this that you guys have done has been instinct passion and kind of the mixture, kind of give me that, put me in that mindset, because certainly you brought the word fear. I, I think as, as any new business adventure, you know, you, you certainly have doubt and fear and, and that kind of stuff that can creep in, but you know, you guys forged ahead and, and, and you believed in, in, in yourselves and you believed in the opportunity in the white space, but that can't, part of that came from instinct and part of that came from, from passion. So tell me kind of how that evolves for you personally. Yeah. 
that's a good question. I think I think the you know, fear and anxiety, I think it's one of those things where it's like it's either a motivator or it paralyzes you. Right. The, and so I think that's that's one. It's OK. What do you do in the face of challenges and, and opportunities? Are you going to just kind of take it lying down or are you going to really figure out, OK, what else can be done here? And so and then I think instinctually, maybe that answers that question, I guess. If your instinct is, I'm not going to just sit here and take it, you know, deal with it, kind of a path that seems like it's going nowhere. And so I'm going to go out there and just actively pursue opportunities. I think that is an instinct. And look, you absolutely have to have passion. It's, I would think, in, in everything you do, but you both know how challenging and difficult our line of work is. And I think mm -hmm. whether it's a retail pharmacy, a compounding pharmacy, a a long-term care pharmacy, an IV pharmacy, whatever it is that you do, it's it's challenging. It's it's hard stuff. At the at the crux of it, you've got you know patients who are trusting in you with their life, with their well-being, and so that's a big burden. And you know, and then on top of that, everything else that happens, you have to deal with regulatory-wise, and you know PBMs, etc. So it's it's complicated, and you have to have a passion for the right thing, and and that has whatever that is for you. You know, for us. It's about improving quality of life and simplifying pharmacy. That's been our guiding light the entire time. Mm -hmm. Every decision we make, we filter it through those two things. Is it improving the quality of life for the patients, the residents that are trusting us with, with their health? And is it simplifying pharmacy for them and their caregivers and their loved ones? And if it is, then, then you know, okay, great. Now, how can we do it better, faster, more efficiently? Right. If it isn't, then... You know, we want to stop doing it because there's just, you know, there's no time or resources to to waste in that. And then as as you do that within the existing space, from an instinctual perspective, okay, where else could you see, you know, your services, that approach benefiting? And and again, I think sometimes you try something. We've had examples where we've gone into markets or we've tried things out a year, two years, three years, and we learn. And we either learn that this is awesome and we can be really effective at that or, you know what, this is really not within our sweet spot and you move on. And and you have to have some tolerance for that. But I think as long as that passion and that vision for what you're looking to accomplish, you stay true to that and it's core to it, then I think it's a worthy endeavor, you know. And, and yeah, I, last, when was it, maybe last week, I had a chance to spend some time with Lenny Parker and you know, just even his story and, and how it kind of, you know, ended up to PillPack with his son, TJ. It's a lot of similarities, right? I mean, a lot of entrepreneurial spirit, a lot of just kind of experimenting some, you know, maybe some grand vision that others thought was crazy or you couldn't do or... I'm glad you brought him up because that was part of the conversation around fear is that every time, even Mark Cuban to some degree, every time something happens in pharmacy that big, Amazon buys a pharmacy, Mark Cuban enters the drug pricing space and starts a pharmacy. There, there was, that was the crux of the fear argument was pharmacists that exist and, and are out there are like, oh my God, this is, this is the end. Amazon's going to take over. But there's that other side and you're part of that other side, which is, I'm not going to worry about that. I'm going to go out and do what I know is right and what is best, and I'm going to perform, and I'm going to execute and deliver for my patients and the, and the clients that we have, and I'm not going to worry about necessarily what other people are doing as long as I'm doing it successfully and in the right way. And I'm going to pivot a minute and maybe focus a little bit on assisted living because 
you're right in that wheelhouse. But I've always been interested because assisted living is between skilled nursing and the community for a lot of older Americans. In many places, it's more of a hospitality model than it is a care model. And it's very broad. There could be, you know, out west, I know there are eight, ten person communal houses basically that are identified as assisted living. And then there are memory care centers that most of us that have worked in the industry for a while would say that looks a lot like a nursing home. It's locked. They take care of people with dementia and other conditions. How do you see that changing over the next five years as we really get an influx of people in the over 65 and even in the over 80 population? Does the government have to step in at some point and say, A, we've got to invest in this because people need this level of care, and B, we've got to provide some definition to it because right now it's just kind of all over the place. How do you see that? Yeah. I was at a roundtable yesterday with some of these questions were being asked. And, you know, I think it's interesting. I mean, look, I, I met a pharmacist at MHA last month who has a pharmacy in Northern California that is servicing those very same ALs you were referencing, you know, eight to 15 bed small communities and is doing great, you yeah. know, and, and is loving what he's doing and is doing really, really well. I think there's kind of a lot of things to unpack there. I mean, certainly if you look at the demographics, you see a huge wave of of potential need, right? And then you you kind of put that huge number of folks against the fact that everybody knows that the savings that you know, those same boomers probably cannot afford at least not all of them and maybe not even the majority of them to to live in a lot of these communities and not like any other business the senior living operators have been hit with a huge, you know, operational expense over COVID and labor's gone. Yeah, that, that's a heavy labor, heavy industry where, sure, you know, we can automate a lot of things and, and they, 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 they can deploy right. technology. But at the end of the day, it's a people business, right? Right. And a lot of technology that's being deployed nowadays is, is how do you keep people in their homes longer? So that shift in acuity uh, down from hospitals to nursing homes to assisted living is probably just going to continue. I, I just started rewatching The Sopranos and like that's been 23 years ago. And the first season's all about, you know, Tony Soprano and trying to move his mom into, you know, quote unquote, a retirement community. Right. And she doesn't want to go in a nursing home. Ma, it's a, not a nursing home. It's a retirement community. So there's a lot of those same conversations being had now about, well, is it really senior living? The boomers are really not don't view themselves as quote unquote senior. So you'll see now adult, active adult. Well, does that really, what does that mean? So I think there's a combination. Yes, you probably are gonna have to have some government subsidy that comes with, you know, strings, right? Regulations sure. oh, and yeah. things that, that I think the industry learned from nursing homes and skilled nursing facilities that they probably would like to avoid in the assisted living space. And so they'll have to figure out kind of what's what's good, what's not. I think you've seen it in the affordable living space. And I think what a lot of operators will tell you is it's not necessarily a moneymaker for them if you're having on assisted living, affordable kind of subsidized assisted living. Yep. You know, maybe there is an aspect where if you have 10 or 15 percent of your residents in some form of subsidized program, maybe it works, whether it's Medicaid or maybe VA opening up VA benefits so that they pay for some of these services. I think by and large, what I see happening really 
is operators figuring out how can they deliver the optimal amount of care that individuals can afford. And that can probably take a lot of different shapes, but the one that probably seems the most likely to me is some kind of a value-based care alignment with payers like Medicare Advantage. And whether that is through profit sharing or savings sharing or just resources that the entity at risk is able to put into their communities, i.e. labor, that could then help them defray some of those payroll costs. You know, think of like some kind of a care concierge or a care coordinator that helps coordinate all the different ancillary providers and services that are flowing through their buildings. I think that's probably the most likely outcome, but you may have, you know, in certain pockets and certain segments, some level of government direct, you know, Medicaid or other VA, other contribution. But I think by and large, the industry would prefer to steer clear of of that and, you know, regulate themselves, yeah, right. really keep it at the state level. Right. Or control it. Yeah. Control yeah. it by being ahead of it. Let me ask you, here we are 13 years later and you have a direction your company's headed towards and you've had, guys have a lot of great accolades. I know that you've invested a lot into technology, but you've also invested in your people. And I saw that this was voted as one of the better places to work or a great place to work, I think up in Chicago area for two consecutive years in a row. That's awesome. Those type of things don't happen because people are disgruntled. I mean, this is during the COVID period and and, and whatnot. Those things happen because management invests into their own staff to create that type of environment and culture. So I know that's very important to you. I know technology is important to you and, and I've worked with you closely over the years on that. But coming from the perspective of if I was going to start a pharmacy from scratch day one, what would be the top couple, two or three things that you would must do now, knowing that you've had 13 years of experience doing this? Yeah. Well, what are the top two or three? Well, look, they don't teach us how to run businesses in, in our you know, pharmacy school or medical yeah. school or anything like That's that. True. Right? And, and, and in the end of the day, and I think a lot of it has to speak, speaks to the ability to learn about opportunities and then execute on those opportunities is all based on people, having the right people in the right seat that you invest in. And so I think the number one thing that I, you know, I did not know and I've learned over time and I would have liked to have spent more time learning up front is just just how do you structure and organize an entity? And that's people process, you know, people process and plan. I think investing in that is is really, really important. We we take a lot of pride in the fact that it, we've actually three years running greatest places to work, and that's oh, a national award. It's okay. not Three. Yeah, it's not it's not an annual award 2020, 2021, 2022, and we're wow. we're gonna go through that review again. And so without having even more so now in, in the labor environment that we're in, but I'm just so glad that we invested in this five, six years ago, we started investing in people. That's number one. You really need to make sure that you get really clear on your vision, your core values, the behavioral traits that you're looking for and how you're going to structure the organization and then finding the right people that that can help you get there. I'm a big fan of surrounding yourself with way smarter and more capable people than you are. If, if you're not, then yeah, you're going to have to solve every problem, which is not going to leave you a lot of time to look for opportunities, right? And so I think people is number one. 
I love the people's number one. Yeah, in my opinion, that's number one. It's it, it really, easy and for I think, me to look, surround myself with, with the, people that are that are more capable yeah. and smarter. I I got that down pack. Yeah, but but it's the same thing. I mean, it's people, your your customers, your clients are people as well. So right. I think you know you're investing in your people internally. You're investing in your clients and customers as well. If you are a transactional business and you thrive in transactional kind of relationships, then that's fine. You know, for us, we're really a partnership-based business. It's a relationship-based business. If we get a sense that it's true transactional, whether it's with an employee or with a client, then we kind of level set that and and make sure that, hey, if it makes sense for both parties, that's fine. But if it doesn't, we're not going to jump through unnecessary hoops for transactional relationships, whether that is, you know, an employee or or a uh, client, right? There's kind of a threshold where, yeah, there's going to have to be some transactional opportunities per DM, some part-timers, but, you know, full-timers and folks that, that we have internally, it's if it becomes too transactional, if we're transactional with them, then we're not holding our end of the bargain. If they're too transactional with us, then they're not a right fit. And it's the same thing with our relationships with the partner communities we're with. If it's too transactional, then it's not our cup of tea, we'll move on. And that's just it. So you've got people... And then it's it's your process. I'm a big fan of, of being, you've got to be committed to a process and, and technology factors into that, you know, just repeatability. If, you, if you're able to be very consistent, you're, you're measuring what matters, you can inspect what you expect, and you're constantly learning to get better. Just the continuous quality improvement mindset, that quality excellence mindset operationally. I think that's that's key in our industry. It's table stakes, but you can't get there with the wrong people, right? So it's, it's your people, your process, and then your plan. And the plan, look, I mean, the plan, you know, for us is we use something called Entrepreneurial Operating System, EOS Traction. It's really designed to help small businesses kind of organize themselves and, you know, just get really clear on on what they're looking to accomplish and, and achieve. And, and that's what we do. And the vision traction organizer that we call kind of is laid out on, okay, what's our BHAG? Kind of the big, hairy, audacious yeah. goal, and you know, for us, that is twenty-five thousand residents in the next, you know, three to five years. Yep. So we want to be able to service twenty-five thousand residents in the next three to five years. Okay. Well, how are you going to do that? Then you get back into three years. We want to get to double our size where we're at today to about rough around twelve thousand to fourteen thousand residents by you know twenty twenty-six. And then you back into the one-year plan, your one-year goals. Okay, now what do you have to achieve this year to get to that three-year picture? So then you set your one-year goals, and then you break it into, okay, so now what do you need to do in the next 90 days to get to your one-year goal? So really creating a plan for yourself that you can execute, like anything else, right? You want to, you can't, how do you eat an elephant, right? One bite at a time. So it's, okay, state your big vision, and then you got to back into, okay, now, how do I get there? And then break that into smaller chunks, because then people get motivated, right? Because they're accomplishing things, and they see you're kind of building momentum. It's like a snowball. You just start building momentum. I remember when we were at 2,500 residents, and I was at, I think I was at a Parada meeting, we were maybe at 25 or 300 residents. And I, I made a comment that, you know, our goal was to double and be at 5,000 residents. I think at the point it was like in two years. And, you know, I've had people who told me afterwards that no, nobody believed me that I, that, that, that I could do that. that they had heard, you know, many people, I think Tim Hutchison was actually one at Framework. He was like, you know what, man, so many people come to me and say, oh, this is what I'm going to do. I did not think 
that you guys would be able to do it. Well, 2,500 turns to 9,000. Well, it yeah. didn't turn into 9,000 overnight, right? Right. It requires that people process plan, from my perspective. It requires that people process plan. Now, there's there's pharmacists that have done bigger and better things than I. And so I think, you know, there's different ways to kind of approach that. But that's what's worked for us. I think that's awesome. I'm going to pull you back for one more little tidbit because I really liked what you said about thinking of assisted living in the context of Medicare Advantage and having the services be, you know, a, a value-based partnership between some of those Advantage plans and the assisted living centers. How does pharmacy play a role in that? And even further than that, you know, obviously we're spending a lot of time thinking about people living in their homes longer, but needing some of the services that pharmacies like yours provide. And, and you have some experience with that in the assisted living space. Is that a path for pharmacists to do more for people in their home if they qualify or feel like they need these extended services? How do you see that? The short answer is yes. I do think that's the future. I do think pharmacists have a huge opportunity in that regard. I will tell you specifically there's got to be an alignment, not just with pharmacists, with all service providers in this space of taking care of, you know, long-term care residents, patients, whether they're at home or in, in any other setting. There's got to be an alignment between those service providers, pharmacy, hospice, rehab, physicians, payers, with the operator, and most importantly, the resident. And I think right now we're stuck in this kind of fee-for-service model yeah. mm -hmm. where it's just long term. I don't think that's sustainable. I mean, you know, I don't know what the timeline is, whether it's three years or five years or 10 years. But the idea that you can just indefinitely just pump, you know, a huge number of prescriptions and just make a profit doing that. I just don't see that being the only path forward. And so whether that is some kind of a risk sharing, whether that is some kind of an outcomes based, I do think it will get to that point. You know, for us, between now and then, that's been part of our strategy is we want to align ourselves with the operator. And so there's some decisions we make in terms of how we execute and what value we think will bring to the operator and the, and the, and the resident doing that. But one of the key advantages that we feel we, we bring to the table is our model, you know, allows us to optimize the therapy of the resident because we can support a broader number of residents across a larger geography. And so we're not as dependent on having, you know, say 5,000 Mrs. and Mr. Smiths on 15 plus meds. We can, that's why our goal is 20 to 25,000, because, you know, if we can get 20 to 25,000 residents on optimal therapy, whether that's eight meds for them or four meds for them or 10 meds, whatever that is, we can align our incentives with the operators, because they don't want a lot of meds in their buildings. Right. You know, I, there's an article that came out yesterday in Argentum. Most patients don't want to take a lot of meds. In fact, I think right. it was like 20% of the patients have started voluntarily themselves initiating co uh, conversations with their prescribers about deprescribing. Right. And most patients, like 87 or 90% of them, would like to stop meds if their, you know, prescriber agreed to do so. Well, I think that's just a matter of aligning incentives. And, and I, you know, that is a big focus for us. We want to be prepared for that. And so we are doing a lot of work up front now and have been for some time to set ourselves up to be the best in class pharmacy provider that has their incentives aligned with the operator's incentives. And so right. 
to do that, you've got to you've got to be able to have again the people process plan in place so that you can support a broad patient base. Because in the environment we're in today, you're still fee for service. So now the question becomes, okay, well, how do you make money? You still for this time being, it's like, okay, we want to still we want to aggregate prescriptions, but over a larger patient population base as opposed to a smaller population base. Right. And and so and, and I think there's just kind of going to be stepping stones to get from where we are today to an environment where right. we're getting paid for outcomes. Yeah, and with that in mind, I know that you all recently released, I think it was on LinkedIn, I saw it on information, how you're actually taking another new adventure, another step with incorporating AI, I believe with, with, with health records. You want to talk a little yeah. briefly about how your guys are not resting in your laurels and you're taking a blazing a trail here, if, if you will, in this area. Yeah. Look, I mean, I think there's many of pharmacies that have done some really cool things, you know, kind of a coordinated approach with other ancillary services, whether there's rehab, physician groups, and those are all things that we have, we are pursuing and have pursued and, and continue to work on. But obviously, there's such great opportunity now with machine learning and, and all these powerful software tools and, you know, chat GPT and artificial intelligence. And I think there's a huge opportunity to be very proactive to tone down the noise of all the false alerts, the false positive, and really identify the true high-risk flags and interventions, and then have providing meaningful, concise recommendations. And a way to do that is to be able to pull information that we don't have access to today. And so we are actively working with EHR so that we can get access to you know, the resident's pulse and blood pressure and potentially labs if they're in there and uh, blood glucose readings. And then, you know, using applications and tools that monitor those over an extended period of time, 20, 25 readings. And then, you know, then bouncing that against the pharmacy records, the drug list, and truly bubbling up to the top opportunities where the pharmacist can intervene and, and have a meaningful recommendation. Right. And, you know, it's still in a pilot phase for us, but we're really excited about it. And and those are types of things that where, where it's, you know, it's it's not defined today. Everybody's kind of just thinking about what, you know, what the future might look like. But you have to invest the time and you have to have the right people. If if I was the only one working on that, I wouldn't have the time to do it. We have a great team. You know, you, Tom, you've met Moody and Patrice, we talked about all these folks that we have and Brenda and Sam yeah, and Dave and, and so and then they have their teams. And and so looking at all these things, you know, we found an opportunity where it's like, okay, there's an application that's been successful in the acute setting, in a hospital setting. They're interested to explore the post-acute space. We're experts in this post-acute space from a pharmacy perspective. We have great relationships in the EHR space. That's where you become a connector, a networker. You kind of, you know, you try to align your incentives, what you're looking to accomplish, what they're looking to accomplish. And then in the end, you know, some of it may work, some of it may not. But those are the things that we're looking for is, okay, how do you leverage technology so you, we can be very effective and efficient? Um, so we're excited about it. And that's, you know, what, what this particular show has been about is that hope and that, you know, hope isn't a strategy, but when you see people investing, when you see people innovating, when you see people applying new tools that, that come to fruition and making their businesses better, 
it gives all of us some level of hope that, hey, this this is a viable industry. This has a future. For those young pharmacists out there that are getting into this industry at, a, at, at this point in time, I really feel like it's this pivotal time where they need to be shown that there are people out there making interesting investments, innovating, building new types of businesses in pharmacy because that's sort of the cycle we're in. Right. And then they need to be inspired. And that's where it comes from. Yeah. People like Lobby. Absolutely. So Lobby, well, totally appreciate folks, it. Right, plenty of other folks that have done and, and will continue. I mean, this sure. the great thing about this industry is, is that we are very entrepreneurial. We really are. I mean, this space, pharmacy is just super entrepreneurial. And here's the other thing about pharmacies. We've had to deal with these pressures longer than most other healthcare providers. Yep. I mean, you go back to the 80s, right? Pharmacists have been figuring out, and even before that, right? We were compounding initially before pharma started mass manufacturing. So you could probably go back 60, 70, 80 years and just that spirit of innovation, entrepreneurialism, I think is really, really ingrained and it's it's a mindset. It's it's yes, there's challenges. And and I think it's not an ostrich of like, hey, you stick your head in the sand and don't acknowledge the challenges. Yes, they're out there. But then what are you going to do about it? Right. I think there's plenty of opportunity. We have plenty of know how and we have just that DNA that goes back decades that is within this industry. And there's plenty of those folks still around. Lenny Parker and others. And I mean, Marcus Wilson with Integrity just recently, you know, he's had a couple of really successful ventures. Tom's been very successful in his own right. So there's there's a lot of folks that have done really, really well, have done really cool things. And that's cool in this industry and for young folks coming in to know that there's plenty of people that have done it at a high level, continue to do it. And they're more importantly than that, what was really, really cool is by and large, most folks in this space are not just willing, they're eager to share their experience right. and to be a soundboard and be an advisor. Right. You know? Yeah. And so I think that aspect of it is another really cool thing about our industry. Yeah. And uh, it's neat. Yeah. You've said it a couple of times. It's, it's the networking. It's the collaboration. You know, Chad and I are sitting here from completely different backgrounds, but both in long-term care. And we have a common interest, which is long-term care pharmacy. And that's what brought us together to do this podcast. It's, it's that network in collaboration, you know, together. And, you know, we've been in long-term care for 20-something years, and we're going to continue right. being long-term care for the rest of rest of our lives. But I've got one more Ted Lasso quote to, to, to leave us off with. It, he says here, it may not work out how you think it will or how you hope it does, but if you believe it will, it'll all work out. And Lobby, you've been a prime example of that over the past 13 years. And I know that you're going to continue helping lead our industry in, in innovation and creativeness and being an entrepreneur. And so I just wanted to, to thank you for spending the time with us today and, and being a leader in our industry. And I've, I've always enjoyed the time that we get to spend together. And every time up in Chicago, I, I, I try to grab you at least for a quick lunch just to connect with you. So I appreciate you, buddy, and appreciate what you're doing for the industry. Well, thank you, Tom, and, and Ditto. I've, you know, I've been a fan of, of yours for a long time. You've been very generous and supportive of me and us with your time and your knowledge. Again, just you know, another example of, of, of Chad, same way. I mean, I, I met Chad just kind of pinging him and saying, hey, I've got this problem. Can you help me? And first time I talked to him, he was, you know, he was very generous with his time. And so I, I assume that's kind of a, a sense of, hey, you got to pay it forward. And 
That's right. And it's the same thing with me. And I think the one thing I would like to say is I, what's important is to focus on the journey. Yes, the outcomes are important, right? In the end, the results matter, but they don't matter more than the journey. And if, if you're not in it for the right reasons and if you don't enjoy it and find value and and fulfillment in the journey, then nothing that we say here, Chad, is going to change that. Right. 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 And, you know, you're what you can control is your attitude. What you can control is your mindset. And and that has a huge impact then on your teams and the rest of the folks that maybe look up to you and, and, and would depend on you for and by you. I mean, all of us that have been in this industry for guidance and acknowledgement and encouragement to get into this industry. And so let's focus on the journey. Enjoy the journey. Yes, there's important results we want to achieve on the other end, but it's not worth it if we if we don't do it for the right reasons and, and enjoy it along the way. No, and I, th- I think you said it best when you said, you know, talking about people, we need to invest in each other, whether that investment is mentorship, whether that investment is is working together on projects. It's not transactional. And you said that it's this. There's no room for transactional relationships. What there's room for is real human people investment relationships. And I think you you said that best. Well, thanks again. It's a marathon, not a sprint, right? That's right. Thanks again, Lobby, for being on. We're thrilled to have you. Thanks for everybody that's watching and listening out there. And we will be back in a week with a, another podcast of our experience. Thanks, everybody. Thank you, Chad. Thank you, Tom. Thank you, Lobby. 